We'd love for you now to take your Bibles, and we're, we're making our way into the book of Luke during this Advent season. And we're looking today at a passage of Scripture that has been throughout history affectionately referred to as the Magnificat. And that comes from a word that carries the idea of to magnify, and that's exactly what Mary does in her relationship to God. She magnifies God for all of us to be able to process together. And so this young lady, most likely between the ages of 13 and 16, even more so likely moving towards 16, finds that God has miraculously demonstrated his grace to her and through her to us by bringing Jesus into this world. To be able to set the stage, we're going to pick it up in verse 39, because we have this encounter between Mary and her relative Elizabeth, where Elizabeth carries the forerunner, John the Baptist, within her womb. And John the Baptist, already doing the work of the forerunner, prompts both the attention of Elizabeth and Mary to focus upon the one to whom John the Baptist was prepared to direct people, and that's towards Messiah Jesus. So beginning at verse 39, we were told that at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, uh, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you'll bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Well, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Lord, the Mighty One, has done great things for me. And holy is his name. His mercy extends to those teach. Fear him, and from generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And so Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. So we're going to be looking today at this musical composition that God really placed upon Mary's heart, what's been called the Magnificat. And we're going to see how relevant it is just to the way in which you and I go about living our lives on a daily basis. To do that, we're going to start, of course, by doing what we ought to do and pausing and looking to our God now in prayer.
And our fathers, we're coming into your presence. We are thankful. We're grateful. We come into your presence with reverence and awe because we've quieted our hearts, narrowed our attention upon you. You are infinite. We can't hold you into a particular box. You are eternal. We can't limit you in duration to eternity. You are unchangeable. You're not driven by the moods within or the circumstances without. You're a constant in the variables of our lives. That gives us strength. And when we consider your promises, it gives us hope. It gives us something firm, something lasting, something durable when we consider that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and on that third day was raised. And so, Father, what we want to do now is we want to analyze very carefully, at the same time personalize very biblically what it is that Mary through the Holy Spirit's prompting now, has expressed. She's given you praise. She's rejoicing in her heart because her God has provided her deliverer. So, Father, likewise for us now, what we want to do within our own hearts is to prep them, prepare them, develop them, They've got to be elastic enough to be able to stretch with all the truth that you deliver. And so warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wheels. Because again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus. Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a powerful and insightful statement that the man who oversaw the engineering project of the Brooklyn Bridge wrote, the bridge which joins Manhattan to Brooklyn. And think about how it relates to your life and mine. It was in June of 1872 that these words were penned. Quote, to such of the general public as might imagine that no work has been done on the New York Tower because they see no evidence of it above the water, I should simply remark that the amount of the masonry and concrete laid on that foundation during the past winter underwater is equal in quantity to the entire masonry of the Brooklyn Tower visible today above the water line. So I began to think about what that great engineer had expressed. What he's telling us, that there was tremendous preparation involved that was not visible to the average set of eyes. Something was happening beneath the water line. 
of history. Just in that situation, likewise with God, the average set of eyes within all of Israel would have overlooked someone between the ages of 13 through 16, whose name was Mary, have not considered the way in which generation by generation God had been engineering a project where in the right time, under a particular emperor by the name of Caesar Augustus, in a small town by the name of Bethlehem, not even Jerusalem, let alone Rome, God was busy at work. But as is so often the case when it comes to God's preparations, they take place beneath the waterline of life. You and I are always looking for what God is doing, aren't we? Praying for some visible evidence, perhaps, of God being at work in a particular person or a particular situation. The danger is assuming that God is not at work until it's being done above the waterline of personal experience. When in reality, what God has to do is to so firmly and thoroughly construct something beneath the waterline that it will then hold up in the course of the events that we face day in, day out. Don't wait for faith to kick in once God begins to work above the waterline of your everyday personal experience. Like this great engineering feat. This engineer was working, pouring in tremendous amounts of material, constructing with some valuable resources, working hard in manners in which people would not have even pondered in the midst of the coldness of the winter days, so that in the spring and the summer of life, What was previously invisible to the eyes now becomes visible for others to see. And such now is the case here when you look at Mary and Elizabeth. Two women that society may have been prone to overlook. And now Elizabeth, who carries child within her, is approached by Mary, who has child within her, And you and I are informed of something extraordinary that Elizabeth now shares in verse 44. Where as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. In other words, John the Baptist was already functioning as a forerunner within the womb of Elizabeth, pointing Elizabeth in the direction of the one within the womb of Mary, whom you and I refer to as Jesus. Yet all this is happening beneath the waterline, yet it is so significant, because even within the midst of this, we see God sovereignly at work in his messianic strategy within the wombs of two women. Which, by the way, as you and I examine this text, are struck with how pro-life this text is. It's a side road. Because God is creating a spiritual consciousness 
within the mindset of John the Baptist within the womb of Elizabeth, making him aware of the Messiah within the womb of Mary, God was creating spiritual consciousness of Jesus within that child who has not even yet been delivered. Fascinating. All the more such when you begin to ponder the significance of how this is described in the original writings. Because in Acts chapter 7, verse 19, Stephen, in his recollection of the history of Israel, refers to the young Hebrew children slaughtered at the Pharaoh's command, Acts 7, verse 19, using the word brephos in the Greek, the very same word used to describe here John the Baptist, brephos, within the womb of Elizabeth. In other words, God is viewing this child the same in the womb as he does outside the womb. The same word is used. God is creating a messianic consciousness within John the Baptist, who is now already functioning as a forerunner, pointing Elizabeth towards Jesus. And all of this is happening so-called beneath the waterline. What I want to do is to ponder the way in which God is working, perhaps beneath the waterline in your own personal life, and how God has done this through the course of time leading to Jesus. We're going to look at three significant realms in which God is operative in these verses. We're going to check them out together. Now, the first is found beginning in verse 46, and we're going to take it down through verse 49. We're going to phrase it like this, that number one, in God's Advent preparations, God's grace is evident in the personal realm. Now, Mary's going to get very personal with you and with me. And she's going to be talking about what this significant event within her womb means to her spiritually and eternally. And you and I have to do the same as we consider how God is busy working, preparing. Because in verse 46, Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. This is where we get the word magnify. This is why we call this song the Magnificat. Because now what Mary is doing is that she is magnifying what God has done in her life based upon who God is before her very life. Now, when you and I pause on that opening phrase, my soul glorifies the Lord, we've got to begin to think about the way in which we are called to magnify God. So now begin to think about the various people in your life going into this Christmas season. And ask yourself, how can I go about magnifying God? Well, let's think about magnification for a few seconds here, which we sometimes do with this little analogy. You may have within your extended circle people for whom God seems so distant. They're going through difficult times, and they're asking the difficult questions. If God were good, why would this be happening to me? And God seems so abstract and far away 
and they need somebody to come along and to, like Mary, personalize it for them. Got anybody like that in your life? The role of the telescope is to take that which seems so far away and bring it near through the usage of magnification. Which means then, for some of us, we are going to have to function telescopically, bringing those who have such a view of God that he's distant and removed before the lens of the telescope of the Scriptures and allow for the greatness and the glory of God to be brought near to their own personal experience and see how greatly he is involved. But for others of us, it's not so much that God is far and needs to be, through magnification, brought near telescopically. But there are going to be those in our circles for whom God just seems to be rather small. And so now we think microscopically and how God needs to be enlarged in front of their very eyes so that they've got a greater understanding of the glory of God, the power of God, the great worthiness of God, magnification, telescopically or microscopically. On the microscopic front, I'm thinking of a story. He went to a jeweler, and he wanted to be able to take a look at the various diamonds that were going to be used on a ring. So he's just settled not on one, not on two, but three at least, different diamonds, and he worked it out with the, with the jeweler that he could take it back to his laboratory. He took these diamonds and he put them under his high-powered microscope so that he could determine if there were any flaws in any of these diamonds. And once he was able to come to a conclusion which one was best suited for the one he wanted to give to his fiance. That's the one he purchased and returned the others. But when you and I begin to think about what we've got to do through magnification, we've got to ask ourselves, which is it among the people that we know where telescopically we're going to have to use magnification to bring God near to them? And which of those people who have such a limited, shrunken view of God that now we're going to have to think microscopically and how we're going to have to biblically enlarge this understanding who God is for them, so that we are dealing with the richness of God and his glory, which is exactly now, exactly what Mary is doing for us in the Magnificat, the magnification of God, my soul glorifies the Lord. Then she adds, and my spirit rejoices in God, and I want us to be able to see what comes next. This is critically important. Because Mary's a sinner just like you and me. It's right there. My soul glorifies the law and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She needed a Savior, just like you and I need a Savior. And so now she's put in proper perspective who she is in relationship to God and who God is in relationship to her. Are you doing that right now? Now, she has to come to grips with the fact that so much of what God has done generationally up until this point has been beneath the waterline. But now something is occurring within her own womb. And Gabriel has spoken of God's eternal plan. And Elizabeth now, through John the Baptist leaping for joy within Elizabeth's womb, has ministered to Mary's heart 
And now Mary is hearing from both Elizabeth and Gabriel. Remember, two witnesses utilized here to substantiate evidence within Jewish circles. Mary now is pondering the evidence of what God is doing, and she speaks of the fact that this God is her deliverer. What do you do when you're given this kind of information? You've been delivered. You've been delivered from the penalty of your sins. And on what basis is she able to say this? Circle the little word for in verse 48. Circle the little word for in the beginning of verse 49. Whenever you see that, it refers to reasons. Always ask, what, why is for there? Now, here's your first reason. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Notice here, then, that God is so gracious to Mary, he has not overlooked her. He is mindful of her. You ever feel like you've come into even a Christian gathering and you feel somewhat overlooked, perhaps undervalued? Mary is in a time period in circumstances of life where the average set of eyes would be prone to just simply overlook her and perhaps undervalue her. And yet God in his sovereign plan has chosen this particular woman as the means by which Messiah is going to come into the world. And while everybody else might be thinking of Rome and the various political features and people there by which and through whom God would work, God uses an overlooked setting of Bethlehem, an overlooked woman by the name of Mary somewhere between the ages of 13 to 16, and through the divine workings of the Holy Spirit now, Mary is with child, and she says to God, you've been mindful of me. Have you paused? And you thank God for the fact that because he has sent Jesus to die for your sins, he's been mindful of you. It's grace. But there's a second reason. It's found in verse 49. She rejoices, she magnifies, not only because he's been mindful of her, but in verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. It does not merely say for the mighty one has done great things, period. God is not some abstract, removed God. Do you see how personal she just got with you? The mighty one has done great things For me, she is intensely aware of the power of God. Philip Yancey wrote this in Christianity Today. I remember my first visit to Old Faithful in Yellowstone National Park. Rings of Japanese and German tourists surrounded the guys. Cameras trained like weapons on the famous hole in the ground. A large digital clock stood beside the spot. 
predicting 24 minutes until the next eruption. My wife and I passed the countdown in the dining room of Old Faithful Inn, overlooking the guys. But when the clock reached one minute, we, along with every other diner, left our seats, rushed to the windows to see the big wet event. I noticed that immediately, as if on signal, a crew of busboys and waiters descended on the tables to refill water glasses and clear away dirty dishes. When the geyser went off, we tourists oohed and awed and clicked our cameras, and a few spontaneously applauded. But glancing back over my shoulder, I saw that not a single waiter or busboy, not even those who had finished their chores, looked out the huge windows. Old Faithful, grown entirely too familiar, had lost his power to impress. And I think about that. And I ask to what degree in this Christmas season have, become, have people become so accustomed to Christmas and the Christmas story that they no longer are impressed. Yet God lays a serious impression upon Mary's heart and upon my heart and your heart. And she's able to say, he's mindful of me. He is mighty for me. And she's pondering now the power of God. A.W. Tozer does the same in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Sovereignty and omnipotence must go together. One cannot exist without the other. To reign, God must have power. To reign sovereignly, God must have all power, Tozer writes, and then adds, God never surrenders the least iota of his power. He gives, but he does not give away. All that he gives remains his own and returns to him again. Forever he must remain what he has forever been, the Lord God omnipotent. Again, he writes, since he has at his command all the power in the universe, the Lord God omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. All his acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for renewal of strength. Mary grasps this. Mary understands this. And now it seems as though the attributes of God come flowing out of her heart through her lips for you and me to ponder. The Mighty One has done great things for me and then adds, Holy is His name. She's aware of the power of God. She's aware of the holiness of God. Are you? Or you're prone to take all this for granted. See, Mary knows that God is at work, even though it may not necessarily be visible. He's at work beneath the waterline. 
And in God's Advent preparations, he invades the personal realm. But now there's a second realm I want to draw out. It's found in verse 50 down through verse 53. It's where God's grace is evident also in what we'll call the international realm. Look at what occurs next. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And you say, well, how does he go about demonstrating that mercy to you? How does he go about demonstrating that mercy to me? Notice the imagery here that he uses, God does, as he lays this on Mary's heart. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Sometime when you have opportunity, take your Bible and work through the arm of God and see how practical it is. K. Arthur understands it. When I was a little girl, just a skinny little bean pole with pigtails, I used to run to my father for comfort. I was a tomboy who consistently fell out of trees and crashed my bicycle seemed like I was forever bludging those poor banged-up knees of mine, and that's when I would run with pigtails flying and dirt, dirty tears streaming down my face into the arms of my father. Daddy, Daddy, I would cry. And I'm so fortunate because I had a father who would wrap his arms around me. And ever since I was a little girl until the day he went to be with the Lord, I was always his little sweetheart. And I would fly into his open arms, those strong arms, and he would gather me on his lap, dirt, blood, and all, hold me there, and then say, now, honey, tell Daddy all about it. But many years later, I was hurting again, very deeply. But I couldn't run to my Daddy and have his arms wrapped around me. I was now a single mom with two little children trying to work and go to school And I was so weary and so hurting and so lonely. And I longed for those powerful, merciful arms. But then I thought about my earthly father. And it directed me towards my heavenly father. And just then I pictured myself running, weeping into the presence of God as I could hear the cherubim and seraphim crying out, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. And just then I saw myself running up the wide stairs to the glorious throne, two steps at a time, crying, Abba, Father. And just then his arms would open wide and gather me to his chest, saying, There, there, my child. Tell your father all about it. Is that how you approach him? Now, do you see how what Mary has done is that she has bridged might and mercy? Just because you're looking above the waterline does not mean that God is not at 
His might and his mercy are engineering events, working out strategies that you nor I can possibly comprehend. And he's doing that not only in the personal realm, but in the international realm as well. Because what comes next are five verbs in this musical composition. They all look past tense, don't they? But what New Testament writers and scholars look at is the fact that they are what you and I might call future past tenses. In other words, God is looking at the future and saying, good is done. And now Mary, in her musical composition, as she puts the lyrics together, looks at what God is going to do in the future through this one within her womb and saying, good is done. The future is as if it's in the past. Notice how she phrases it now, beginning in the second part of verse 51. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Five different verbs are used there to describe the future in terms of the past. Now, in the very same way, when God looks at you in Romans chapter 8, he looks at you, and the last of those verbs that he uses to describe the plan of salvation is glorified. You and I know that's still to come, that future glorification of our bodies. But have you ever noticed it's past tense? It's past tense. And God sees the future, and everything is so organized according to his sovereign plan. It's as if all those trends we're looking at in the present that are leading towards such uncertainties in the future are nothing more than past tense events in the sovereign outworking of God's mercy and might connected together like a Brooklyn Bridge uniting Brooklyn and Manhattan, you see. And now you look at this and you're awed by God because he's involved in the personal realm and he's involved in the international realm. And he's now working in Iran, and he's working in North Korea, and he's working in Syria, and he's working in Egypt. And all these things are being brought together in a way that will bring glory to his name. This past weekend, just uh, two days ago, my youngest of the children uh, texted me and said, Dad, I'm working on a paper for my, my course on Arab-Israeli conflict, the history of. Could we have a dialogue on what, on what this is going to have to look like for my paper? So we've been having this rich dialogue over the last 72 hours of the various treaties that have been established and violated in the Middle East. But always that with that idea of the future past tense, what God will do, but as good as done. So now, look at that carefully. He's invaded your personal realm. He's involved in the international realm. But now thirdly, notice that God's grace is evident in the national realm. 
Mary now draws our attention to Israel. And notice what she says. He has helped his servant Israel. The very same word is used in Isaiah to describe the suffering servant. And so now she realizes that all of Israel, the servant of God, the vehicle by which Messiah is going to come into the world, she is using her musical composition to draw all of Israel as well to that ultimate suffering servant, the one now within her womb. And because of what comes next, she again is going to have to grapple when she stands at that cross and sees the King of Kings and Lord of Lords crucified. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Very same word which was used by Gabriel, as we looked at last week, to describe his message to Mary that this kingdom was to be forever, so that as she would stand at that cross again, as we would say, and as Pilate had that inscription placed over Jesus' head, King of the Jews, and she would have to grapple with the fact that this kingdom is forever. Isn't God then prepping her heart? This is not the end. There's more to this story. But we've got to be able to say to people who are only prone to look at what's happening above the waterline of life, there's more to this story. There's more to God's work. The mercy and the might are happening beneath the waterlines of everyday life experience. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Abraham. And God promised Abram a seed. And in Genesis chapter 17, it was to be forever. And that same word is used in the New Testament to describe descendants. And that ultimate descendant, Jesus Christ. It's all coming together now here for you. Where the personal, the international, as well as the national itself, merges within the womb of this young lady, by the name of Mary, is God's remembering now to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. She claims the promise to Abram, even as he said to our, for, our fathers, you know. I love the story of William Penn. He's the founder of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, well-liked by the Indians. Once they told him he could have as much of their land as he could encompass on foot in a single day. So early the next morning, he started out, walked until late at night. And when he finally laid claim to his land, the Indians were surprised because they didn't think he would take them seriously. But they kept their promise and gave him a large area, which is today known as part of the city of Philadelphia. You see, William Penn simply believed what they said. Mary believes what God said. She knows that she's got a God who keeps his promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to her. So now you look at this. You look at the personal, you look at the international, and you look at the national, you tie it all together. You may be wondering right now, what's God doing? 
I can't see God at work. But God reveals enough to make our faith intelligent, and God conceals enough to allow our faith to grow. He works beneath the waterline of life so that once that bridge begins to appear, we're not surprised because God's might and God's mercy have found a connection in your heart. Let's stand together. So we're thanking you, Father. We don't want to be like the waitresses and the bus boys out at Yellowstone. People who've grown entirely too familiar. But at a point where we're no longer impressed by the power on display. We recognize the power. We've looked at the Messiah. We embrace the promise. And we trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. Thank you for each one here. If they're so weary, Father, because it seems as though such engineering is happening beneath the waterline and they've yet to see anything happening above it, encourage that heart. Strengthen that heart. May this incredible fellowship here of people love that heart. And I pray that you would graciously now begin to construct something above the line. Allow them, Father, to be able to see their great God at work. So, Father, I trust that one into your care and ask for your grace to be at work. We pray this now in Jesus' name.